A bar of Highland toffee, a strip of contraceptive pills, a box of anodin extra, half a dozen of those tiny Ladbroke pens, a crystal spoon, a pewter tankard, a toby jug filled to the brim with curtain hooks, a sheepskin rug discoloured with tobacco smoke, a ceramic seraph with an ashtray for a brain, Playstations, Xboxes, Nintendo Wiis, microwaves, toasters, espresso machines, brollies and snooker cues, hoovers and paint, trainers and tarot cards. Welcome to Songs and Objects, a podcast that explores the materiality of song. I'm Richard Elliott, and today I'll be talking about some songs and objects in the work of the British singer-songwriter Richard Dawson. I'll be talking about tensions that build when what we want to focus on is people and lives and memories and communities and connections, but all that seems to remain are traces and trails of objects. I'll be suggesting that Richard Dawson's songs are both a brilliant response to such tensions and an example of how songs bring both objects and people to life. In a 2008 review of Evocative Objects, the collection of essays edited by Sherry Turkle that had been published the previous year, the philosopher Graham Harmon wrote, Surely even the dullest objects are laced with songs and legends that await their bards. That's an observation I very much agree with, and it resonates with what I'm trying to get at in Songs and Objects. And for me, one of the preeminent contemporary bards responsible for uncovering the hidden lives and meanings of everyday objects is the Newcastle-based singer-songwriter Richard Dawson. Over the past decade, Dawson has established an international reputation as a crafter of uniquely themed and composed songs and as a dynamic live presence. Things really took off for him nationally in 2014 with his fourth solo album, Nothing Important, released on Domino's Weird World label. The album received widespread critical acclaim, as well as support from British radio DJs such as Mark Riley and Stuart McConey, and Dawson began to tour more widely as his audience expanded quickly from its core base in the northeast of England. Domino subsequently reissued two of Dawson's earlier, independently released albums, The Magic Bridge from 2011 and The Glass Trunk from 2013 as well as new albums Peasant in 2017 and 2020 in 2019. The new albums were again well received, as were appearances at a wide variety of concerts and festivals. This episode draws from material from an article I've written called The Life of Things, Richard Dawson's Object-Oriented Songcraft, that's due to appear in the new academic journal Songwriting Studies. Since writing that article in 2020, Dawson has released an album with his group Henokled, and as I record this episode, he is about to release an album in collaboration with the Finnish rock band Circle. Oh, and there's the small matter of the 60-plus albums he released with Sally Pilkington during the COVID pandemic in 2020 and 2021 under the Bulbills name. Dawson is nothing if not prolific. 
As national and international reviews, interviews and features appeared during the last 10 years, it became possible to trace and triangulate certain recurring themes that critics and fans were finding in Dawson's work. Among these were the unusual subject matter of his songs and the distinctive musical styles and structures employed. In terms of lyrical content, Dawson's work often highlights what Johnny Lamb, writing for the Quietus, termed the minutiae of things, an accumulation of seemingly unremarkable details made remarkable by Dawson's songs. Record collectors Mike Goldsmith noted Dawson's intricate yet naturalistic lyrics that skewer the minutiae and detritus of life. And while it may be a general feature of popular music that songs inevitably deal with and therefore amplify small details of everyday life, many fans and critics note the simultaneous mundanity and oddness of the objects which appear in Dawson's lyrics. These objects are mundane inasmuch as they are artefacts of the world with which many of his listeners are familiar. Yet they're odd because of their rarity as song lyrics. There simply aren't that many songs that feature Phillips Head screwdrivers, bars of Highland Toffee, Woolworth's price stickers, trolleys and snooker cues. As the musician Kean Nugent observes, Dawson's music is familiar and unsettling, like some half-remembered childhood moment that comes up in the midst of a god-awful hangover, crippling in its sweetness. He regularly brings us back to the sober present, Nugent continues, with a bang through his savage commitment to the idea that his songs be about real life, not some fantasy of what a song should be about. His songs mention W.H. Smith, Asda, Anadin Extra, Newcastle United, places and things that hover around the margins of the average UK consciousness and that most of us are not used to hearing sung about at all. Reviewing Dawson's album 2020 for Pitchfork, Sam Sadomsky picked up on the unusual aspects of the lyrics, reporting that Dawson took inspiration from conversations he had with fans at shows and his intimate tone makes you consider words and phrases you've never heard in a folk rock song before. Dehumidifier, Voluntary Redundancy, Nando's. Sadomsky also identifies a combination of banality and mythology in the songs and claims that Dawson succeeds by finding surreality and horror in his everyday musings. Jennifer Lucy Allen compares the medieval-themed Otherworldly Peasant album with the recognisably contemporary British settings of 2020 as follows. Where the characters who inhabited Peasant were coated in mud and twigs, she writes... Those on 2020 are mired in brands and stuff. Nando's, Premier Inn, Bags for Life, Vapes, Zoopla, Aldi, The Red Cross. It is a litany. Dawson himself noted in 2019 how his recent songs reflected what our experience is when we step out of the front door. If you're going to paint a picture of the world actually as people see it, he said, then rather than describing the shape of the landscape, Our landscape is products and big bright words, plastic things. Our whole lives are geared around the acquisition of these things. The dynamic tension between mundanity and strangeness in Dawson's songs is one of the many things that has fascinated me since I first became familiar with them in the late noughties. More recently, when I decided to to start working seriously on my Songs and Objects project, Dawson was one of the songwriters who worked guided my thinking, and who I knew I wanted to include in the project. 
In August 2019, Richard Dawson was kind enough to agree to an interview and we had a long and wide-ranging conversation in my office at Newcastle University. We discussed a selection of his songs and Richard responded to my object-oriented approach, providing some fascinating insights into his thinking about songs, objects, people and the role of the songwriter. And much of the content of that conversation is included in my forthcoming article in Songwriting Studies Journal, so in this episode I mostly summarise the key aspects of it. But first, because this project is as much about objects as it is about songs, I want to describe some of the ways that a variety of thinkers have explored the role of objects in the world. And these are people whose work I've been getting to grips with while I follow my fascination with songs, objects and the life of things. A version of that phrase, the life of things, appears in one of the more influential studies of commodities coming out of academia, Arjuna Pajarai's edited collection, The Social Life of Things. And this collection of essays from 1986 represented an influential moment for a strain of materialism that takes the status of objects and things seriously, even to the extent of granting them agency and decentering, but not absolving, the human from meaning-making and processes of causality. While a Pajarai's own positioning essay in the collection upholds the accepted idea that things, objects and commodities only have meaning within human, social and historical contexts, there's nevertheless the sense that focus on objects and their social lives can yield useful insights. It also provides a useful defence of commodities as serious things to study, as serious as the traditional ritual objects favoured by conventional anthropology, for example. And this idea is taken further in another essay from the collection by Iger Kopitov, in which a biographical approach to objects helps to reveal the changing status of commodities at different historical or biographical moments. While Kopitov's work on the biography of objects has been adopted in many areas, anthropologists have tended to emphasise biographical objects, things that help to tell human biographies. Janet Hoskins' work in this area, for example, has shown how things can be used as props for remembering stories. In her study of a betel bag owned by one of her informants, Hoskins explains that the bag is something that carries stories, acting as both a prop to storytelling, as a container for ritual objects that are necessary for storytelling, and as a receptacle for her informant Maru Daku's other way of recording stories, which is his notebook. And while there's always a risk of undoing the cultural specificity of anthropological work by making broader comparisons, the idea of memory containers is widespread, as is the practice of going through the contents of containers to recreate lives and narratives. As Hoskins observes, overlaps can be found between her work and the work of sociologists such as Daniel Miller, who studies the often mass-produced objects that people keep in their homes, the values that get attached to stuff, and The Comfort of Things, title of, of one of Miller's books. Biographical objects can also be compared with the evocative objects described by Sherry Turkle, and also with the ways objects are used as technologies of memory in everyday life. And before getting back to songs, I just want to think about some more of the thinkers whose work has inspired me in this area. Uh, the philosopher Roberto Esposito, for example, recognises that commodities can take on what we might think of as animistic powers. 
Uh, while things may lose their soul when they move from craft cultures to mass production cultures, Esposito argues that this is only the case as long as they remain items in an inventory, lined up facelessly in a warehouse. As soon as they enter our homes, he writes, discovering a relationship with our bodies, things become special once again, as if each object received its own name. Remo Boudet's study of how objects take on lives of their own and the implications this has for human understanding is also pertinent here. Boudet examines objects both as things that can outlast humans and as commodities whose primary lives are deliberately curtailed. In a chapter called The Duration of Things, for example, he reflects on modern material culture as a culture of designed obsolescence. And this, in my opinion, has relevance for the study of popular music, which has too often in its history been thought of as ephemeral, and yet which has a remarkable durability in personal and social memory. As philosophers working in the continental tradition, Esposito and Baudet, are partly writing in response to the study of things put forward by phenomenologists such as Edmund Husserl, Maurice Meloponti and Martin Heidegger. Their dedication to the lives of objects sits in dynamic tension with Heidegger's account of objects as being to hand and disappearing from human perception as they enter into everyday functionality. For Heidegger, objects become notable when they're broken, malfunctioning or out of place, an observation that's been taken up by some proponents of what Bill Brown calls thing theory. And Brown himself uses this as a way of distinguishing between objects and things. We begin to confront the thingness of objects, he writes, when they stop working for us, when the drill breaks, when the car stalls, when the windows get filthy, when their flow within the circuits of production and distribution, consumption and exhibition has been arrested, however momentarily. In their recognition of the new lives that commodities accumulate as beloved objects, Esposito and Baudet resist the reduction of things to their commodity value. And a complementary approach is taken by Stephen Connor in his Cultural Phenomenology, which eschews any clear distinctions between objects and things. Connor seeks, and I quote, a way of writing about objects that would attend to their peculiar and changeable life in our lives, a way of thinking through things rather than thinking them through. It might be possible, he says, to say interesting and precise things about our relation to the many quasi-objects of our intimately or extimately technologized world, dashboards, joysticks, screens, wires, keyboards, mouses, say, and what they did to and with hand, eye and skin, that would start from somewhere else than the to-hand folksiness of the woodcutter's axe or the cobbler's needle or the abstract allure of the commodity. The listing that Connor employs in the middle of the passage I've just quoted is typical of another area that has shown intense interest in the world of objects, the object-oriented ontology, or OOO, propounded by Graham Harmon, Levi Bryant, Ian Bogost, and Timothy Morton. Developing from a more loosely defined speculative realism, OOO has argued for an understanding of the universe as a set of equal objects that seeks to decenter the human and embrace the non-human. This supposedly allows for a more democratic vision of the universe, one often underlined in OOO texts, 
by using seemingly random lists of things. To take a typical example from Timothy Morton, OOO shows how non-human things, a fox, a pencil, the biosphere, a song, a quasar, a mixing desk, are as rich and alive and special as we think humans are, and how they influence each other in a sensual, molten ether. The approach taken by the OOO philosophers has come under sustained critique for its supposed neglect of human actions, agency and processes. And such critiques resonate with those found in disciplines such as anthropology and ethnomusicology, where it's often argued that a focus on things denigrates what people do with things. In my own work, I've come to think of object orientation as an important way to approach songs and songwriting, hence this project. One aspect of this is to think of object-oriented songs, those songs which place greater-than-usual emphasis on objects as narrative devices. There's also a more general object-oriented approach to songs, both when considering lyrics and when thinking about songs as objects. In adopting the term object-oriented in relation to songwriting processes in this episode and in my article about Richard Dawson, I'm adhering less to the conceptual baggage of withdrawn aspects, duo mining, flat ontologies and other jargon that comes from OOO than I am to describing Dawson's particular songcraft. I want to foreground the songwriter's relationship with how objects are used in songcraft rather than enforcing my own desire to explore the song texts as arenas of intention-free object relationships. Wooden Bag One of the first things that struck me about Dawson's music was its intense and intimate reflection on objects. Witnessing several live performances around the release of The Magic Bridge in 2011, I found myself particularly drawn to the song Wooden Bag. For me, this song resonates with other works of poetry and prose that dwell on evocative objects, witnessing and technologies of memory. For example, Jorge Luis Borges' short story The Witness, Fernando Pessoa's Book of Disquiet, Joe Brainard's I Remember, Georges Perec's Je Me Souviens, and his Notes Concerning the Objects That Are on My Work Table. And these are texts I've mentioned in other episodes of Songs and Objects, and they've pervaded my thinking for years. Like these texts, Wooden Bag represents several objects that are both unusually detailed and evocative of witnessed lives. The song's opening line reads like a description from a catalogue. A knapsack made of oak, purchased for 30 francs from a market in Geneva in 1968. The first verse continues the almost neutral descriptive tone, almost because some evaluation does enter when observing, for example, a level of workmanship one rarely comes across today, one of the many unusual lyrics that the song yields. The bag's outer and inner casing are described, along with the strap and the clasp. The second verse lists the contents of the bag, a bar of Highland toffee, some contraceptive pills, a box of painkillers, specifically anodine extra, seashells, a handkerchief, a cloth-bound diary, and half a dozen of those tiny Labbrook's pens. After each list-like verse, Dawson adds a refrain that moves from neutral listing to the emotive cry of, I can't throw this bag away. Its second iteration prefaced by the declarative, How I miss you, 
I can feel it in my molecules. Wooden Bag is striking for its presentation of detailed descriptions. Most of these objects are ones we do not typically find in song lyrics, even while, apart from the bag itself, they are everyday objects, things we take for granted. Indeed, it's this very unremarkability of the objects in the song that makes them so remarkable. The everydayness of the objects can function in at least two ways. Firstly, as a point of recognition for listeners who share the cultural world of these objects. Secondly, as a transferable or translatable object that for an unfamiliar listener still points towards a shared recognition for evocative objects. When interviewing Dawson, I mentioned the Labrook's pen as an example of the former type of object. This object would be familiar to many of his British listeners, even some who'd not frequented a branch of the betting chain Ladbrokes. By singling out a tiny pen or a strip of pills as a way of communicating to others, both parties can recognise an unusual specificity and a shared experience. And Dawson agreed, noting that the reference to a particular kind of pen taps into whatever experience the listener was having when they experienced that pen. And the same with anodine extra, he said, which is something where not only do you have the object itself with the design on it, but you have the sound of the object, quite a powerful thing, maybe with the half-used foil lifted up, but also everybody's going to have a strong memory of a painkiller. The dialectic of the particular and the universal also arises in Wooden Bag through its mention of the Northumberland parish of Newton-by-the-Sea. While recognising my suggestion that this is a welcome local reference point for listeners who know the northeast of England, Dawson was keen to note that everyone's got a Newton-by-the-Sea somewhere near them as well. Again, the dual nature of the lyric object, in this case a place, means that many listeners unaware of Newton-by-the-Sea will still get the reference to place and also be familiar with hearing places being used in poetic ways in songs. This could be thought of as a way of making the everyday weird. Dawson's work has been associated with the weird, the strange and the freakish from the release of his records by Domino's Weird World imprint to his appearance on shows such as Stuart McConey's Freak Zone and John Doran's New Weird Britain. Dawson, however, retains some suspicion towards the weird tag, although he did agree when I spoke to him that something special occurs when you place familiar, everyday objects in the foreground of a song, also observing that a melody may place an unusual emphasis on an object, and conversely, maybe it's the object that pulls the melody to a certain place. The result is that such objects in songs become what he called totems. It's become clear from Dawson's interviews that he's keen to do justice to the things, people and events he writes and sings about. And this may manifest itself in a rigorous approach to historical detail, be that the branded reference points in Wooden Bag or the songs based on items in the Tyne and Ware archives that form the basis of the Glass Trunk album or in allowing a song to take the lyrical and musical shapes that emerge during the writing, recording and performance processes. And this can lead to a tension between the stubborn persistence of objects in our lives and a sense of the ephemeral when it comes to dealing with human connections. In his song Nothing Important, to which I'll return later, Dawson highlights this tension by presenting lists of objects that have taken the place of the person to whose life they bear witness. 
and in contrasting the present objects with absent people in that song and in Wooden Bag, Dawson suggests that objects are necessary but sometimes unfortunate substitutes for people, for human presence. Dawson's caution about investing too much attention in objects at the neglect of communal bonds could be related to thinking of songs as objects too. And here what he says resonates with something that the songwriter Will Oldham has said, namely that the primary intention of his works is to provide platforms or excuses to commune with others, with people I love, musicians I revere, and audiences who feel similarly desperate for connection. While such accounts present objects as scripts for the creation of more important experiences, performances or communication, my argument would be that this only enhances the importance of the object. Oldham's comment, for example, introduces a printed collection of his song lyrics after all. While using the dialectic of music as thing and process, Dawson referred to artistic techniques whereby treatment of objects in systematically descriptive ways can lead to an interesting transformation or effect. Examples of this from literature include works like Alain Robb-Grillet's Jealousy or Georges Perec's Life, A User's Manual. Of the former, Dawson notes its reliance on flat descriptions of objects and scenes as an influence for Wooden Bag. In discussing the effect that the writing process had on the ultimate direction of the song, Dawson contrasts the writer's plan and then what comes through in songmaking. In the same way a songwriter has to do justice to the people and things they write about, Dawson suggests, there's a need to do justice to what the song wants. The longer I've done it, he says, I'm more and more convinced that it's a living thing, that it's a sentient living thing making itself known. And when you have the experience of this, of not being there one moment and then it's present, then you just have to follow that and do it right. While not denying the amount of refinement necessary to craft songs from initial inspirations, Dawson has come to feel that there is some kind of intelligence that has to take a recognisable shape. And this intelligence comes partly from the accumulated experience of being a songwriter, but also from the inherited affordances of musical styles, the language one writes in, and so on. From an object-oriented perspective, I would want to supplement Dawson's account of the agency of song with a recognition of the vital existence of the objects depicted in a song such as Wooden Bag. Uh, To place the listener as witness to both the ontology and agency of songs and objects would then be to reflect how that listener might be drawn, as I was, to the life of things prior to consideration of authorial intention on the part of the songwriter or singer. While Dawson's narrative usefully sheds light on the latter, my own would emphasise the former. Before knowing what things do here, we learn that things just coexist in weirdly mundane ways. And the song is a frame, therefore, for this coexistence before it is the vehicle for articulating what things do and what they mean for people. Joe the Quiltmaker As narrative theorists show us, the shape a narrative assumes may only become clear on its completion, though we make sense of things as we encounter them. And this seeming paradox lies at the heart of the tension between processes and things. When we add in the role of memory, the necessity for objects expands, 
unearthing objects in a memory box, for example, can return forgotten memories and place them in time, space and order. To narrate requires anchors, or what some cultural theorists refer to as quilting points, those points that pin down, temporarily, the potential chaos and massive existence, in a permanent enough fashion, to suggest stability. Narrative stops things moving about too much. The songs written by Richard Dawson for 2013's The Glass Trunk offer one way of doing justice to the past through its objects. Dawson was invited by the Tyne and Ware Archives and Museums to contribute to a project entitled Half Memory, and his brief was, in his own words, to go into the Discovery Museum's archives and search for anything, and then to make half an hour of music. As he set to exploring this memory box of the region's past, his attention was drawn by a fable in an old scrapbook concerning the brutal murder in 1826 of Joseph the Quilter Headley at his home near the Northumberland town of Hexham. Headley's life and death had already been narrated in 26 verses, published as a broadside under the title Joe the Quilter. And from these verses and other texts in the scrapbook and a book on quilts and coverlets, Dawson fashioned his own long ballad, Joe the Quiltmaker. Following the general shape of the story, he said, I rewrote the words utilising the established verse structure and let the song inflate until it was ready to burst. 26 quiet verses sitting on a page. The song ballooned further to include some of the important detail provided by the book, a pair of bloody clogs, remnants of scalp on a garden hoe, defensive wounds on the victim's hands. Dawson's account of how he let the song inflate resonates with his description of writing Wooden Bag, giving an interesting agency to the song itself. Joe the Quiltmaker doesn't dwell on the quilt as object, but rather on the tragic history of its human subject. However, there is a fragility to the song that invites consideration of it as a quilt, as something being built up and prone to fraying. In the recorded version, Dawson's voice frequently disappears into whisper and wheezing, suggesting an exhaustion of breath. The impression is of a song that could fall apart, but remains held together at the edges. Following the quilting analogy, the fraying of the voice could be heard as an analogue of the unravelling of Joe's life narrative. And Dawson had indeed been thinking of quilting in writing the song, but recalls that the recorded performance was not how he had originally imagined delivering the narrative. The recognition of dealing with real lives and events is central to Dawson's approach to songwriting and is both a reason for, and outcome of, his extensive research processes. In speaking about the songs he wrote for Peasant and 2020, as well as non-album projects such as the film and audio installation This Liberty, for which Dawson wrote songs to accompany Matt Stokes' film about Hexham Old Jail, he emphasises the responsibility he feels towards his subject matter, relating this to the songwriting process for Joe the Quiltmaker. This is somebody whose life is documented, Dawson says. So how do you do justice to their existence? They were as real as you and me sitting here now. So how do you pay tribute to that? I think one of the ways is learning about quilting, about some of the methods. Learn about the topography of the area where he lived, the plant species. 
just to put yourself there. Quilts are, as Marjorie Agosin titles her study of Chilean tapestries, scraps of life, storytelling devices that rely on domestic objects and which themselves become domestic objects. To treat songcraft as quilt making, then, would be one way to do justice to a quilt maker. In terms of song form, if the song is thought of as a patchwork, its refrains can be heard as quilting points, those moments that hold together what might otherwise unfurl. In Dawson's songs, these quilting points are especially important, given the tendency for the song narratives, both vocal and instrumental, to veer about in unpredictable ways. The angular, spiky pieces recorded by Dawson and harpist Rodri Davis that are placed between the songs on the glass trunk are like curious musical exhibits. In Dawson's work more generally, uh, similar angular moments suggest a refusal of smoothness or easy flow, a process which works in dynamic tension with the quilting points that give the songs their more consistent shapes. Nothing important. Appearing five years apart, the songs Nothing Important from the album of the same name and Fulfillment Centre from the album 2020 both use the device of listing everyday objects in ways that highlight their humanising and dehumanising effects, switching between the flat ontologies described by OOO theorists and the evocative objects and object biographies analysed by sociologists and anthropologists. Nothing Important is a 16-minute song that folds together several narratives over five long verses, a refrain, and a short final verse. Two of the verses in particular rely on the listing device, presenting the contents of a room or rooms that serve as witnesses to lives lived. A crystal spoon, a pewter tankard, a toby jug filled to the brim with curtain hooks, a Rington's plate, a digital photo frame, thimbles and pesetas. As the list goes on, evocative objects are lined up in a manner similar to wooden bag, and to Joe Brainard's I Remember. Indeed, Dawson's song uses the words I Remember in relation to all the domestic stuff, but also claims that the things themselves are unimportant, and even obtrusive in the way that they stubbornly persist, even as the people the singer wishes to remember disappear from memory. Where have all my people gone, he sings. There is poetry in all this stuff, and in the listing of it, suggesting that art always goes further than the flatness or equivalence of objects that its philosophical counterpart might seek to analyse. Poems and lyrics do this through poetic language, while song does it through adding musical expression to poetic language, forging a new poetic language of its own. The more interesting tension to note here might not be between poem and song, but between prose and song. Reviewing Nothing Important for The Guardian, Michael Hand described the album's two long songs as matter-of-fact diary entries rather than verse-chorus-verse songs. But I would contend that they work equally well as poems, and the lyrics that appear in the LPs in a sleeve add weight to this. We're given a seemingly random assortment of objects, and yet we can understand from the context that this is in fact a quite precise collection, a catalogue of what might be found in any person's house, room or table. 
This resonates with texts by Brainard, Borges, Perec, and other writers interested in what objects tell us about ourselves and tell others about us after we're gone. Material objects are matter that matters, even when we believe that what matters most are the people the objects point towards. Fulfillment Centre Fulfillment Centre, from the album 2020, relates the experiences of workers slogging to meet orders in a warehouse, with the work depicted as relentless and dehumanising. While the song is structured around people, events, and the feelings of frustration, it also uses the device of verbless listing as a way of underlining the endlessness of the tat contained in the centre, and of the labour required to process it. Trying to keep up with the non-stop demand for trainers and tarot cards, dashcams and wall art, Lego and shaving foam, onesies and retractable extension leads, the pickers are doomed to Sisyphean repetition. Fulfillment Centre sends the message that desire can never be fulfilled, even as the objects listed in the song fulfil some part of their destiny as they move from the flat, alien world of items living incongruously together, to a new life elsewhere. This song, like nothing important and wooden bag, shares qualities with that subcategory of songs known as list or catalogue songs, examples of which I've mentioned in previous episodes of Songs and Objects. And such songs do explicitly what I suggest many other songs do partially, which is to place objects in play with each other. Uh, Ian Bogost suggests that lists found in literary texts produce what he and Graham Harmon refer to as ontography, a way of representing the rich variety of being. For Bogost and Harmon, the inherent partition of things is a premise of OOO, and lists help to underscore those separations, turning the flowing legato of a literary account into the jarring staccato of real being, as Bogost writes. And Bogost extends this to examples in songs, claiming, for example, that Tom Jobim's Aguas de Marceau gives sonorous voice to flat ontology. And while OOO theorists look to the listing of things as evidence of a world of objects not reliant on humans, other writers see listing as an inherently human reference. Katie Kitamura discusses the list as a proof of existence, something that bears witness to a life. Lists, she writes, are used as a formally alienating device, a dehumanising agent that is nonetheless entirely wrapped up in human life. Nothing Important and Fulfillment Centre cover both these axes, albeit in different directions, where the first song strains to see past the listed objects to the human lives they witnessed, it leaves little doubt that these objects can still summon up ghosts, and that sometimes ghosts are all that can be summoned. The second song uses the alienating device of listing commodities to emphasise dehumanising work conditions, but reminds us that these objects bear witness to lives outside the workplace. Whether they have the potential to be anyone's future evocative objects is open to debate, but the possibility cannot be ruled out. Discussing his book Paraphernalia, The Curious Life of Magical Things, Stephen Connor observes that the writing about an object 
can highlight the objectness of one's own writing. And I think one of the most liberating things about writing about objects is that you stop thinking about the writing. You start thinking about the object. You start thinking, no, that's not quite the right sound for sellotape. Does it rip? No, it sort of rasps, but it does a sort of shriek. So you have to do justice to the object and stop thinking about the writing. These observations from Connor resonate with comments that Richard Dawson has made regarding his songwriting. Whether it be the attention given to the description of objects he uses as devices, the feel of the Ladbrook's pen, the sound of the foil on a strip of pills, the smell of the sea in a handkerchief, or the commitment he feels to doing right by the people he is singing about and for. And this sense of responsibility goes together with an ambition to stretch conventional forms. He has said that you're not doing justice to the form, but also doing justice to the community that you're a part of. If you're just singing about yourself, well, it has to be something grander. The results of this human-oriented songcraft rely, in my opinion, on a process of making strange, whereby the automatization of everyday life is challenged by songs that rely on objects that we're not used to hearing sung about. And the result is that human-oriented narratives rely on object-oriented devices. Where might song take us next? Join me for another episode of Songs and Objects to find out.